My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. While we have faced challenges before, this one is different. Stay at home, protect lives, and then you will be doing your part. What I want to know is just how could and just how should the world change after this pandemic? So that's the question I'm putting to leading experts. It feels like it's life and death for people's businesses, their jobs, their hopes for the future. Renowned thinkers. All you want is a hug, to be honest with you. If you're living alone in this era, there are no hugs. And global leaders. China and the United States are going to emerge from this crisis significantly diminished. Welcome to Bridges to the Future, Responses to COVID-19. So I'm delighted in this rather special uh, edition of Building Bridges to the Future to be joined by uh, Anton Howes, who is a historian, but uh, particularly relevant to our conversation. He's a historian of the RSA and has just published a book, Arts and Minds, How the Royal Society of Arts Changed a Nation. So um, Anton, thanks for joining us. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Um, Hopefully we'll have a a physical launch at some point, but we've been trying to innovate, try to work out what an online launch would look like. What kind of things can you do online to engage people? What we normally do, Anton, in this programme is we normally build it all around a question, which is how could and how should the world respond to or change as a consequence of this crisis? And I'm not going to ask you that question, but I'm going to ask you to reflect on what the book tells us more broadly about how the RSA has responded to crises and how institutions do. But before we get into that, if there's a kind of core thesis to your book, what would it be? I mean, the RSA is a very weird organisation, and I don't know how much your listeners know about it specifically. One way to characterise it is that it's Britain's, and now I guess potentially even the world's, improvement agency. Sort of semi-official, subscription-funded, voluntary improvement agency. And when I say improvement agency, I mean that in the broadest possible terms, in the sense that it tries to find gaps in things that aren't already being done um, and tries to find solutions um, to those those problems. Um, So the the theme here, I guess, throughout the entire book is about basically a bunch of people, self-appointed people, people who aren't even necessarily, you know, the experts or the powers that be, but people, ordinary people working out what can I do to make the world that slightly bit better? So let's go back to the very beginning then in that regard. You know, the, the RSA has gone from a group of 11 blokes meeting in a London coffee house to what it is today. Let's start with the very the person who created the whole concept, Shipley himself. To what extent does Shipley as a person exemplify the RSA and the way that in which it's developed ever since his time? Yeah, so it's a great example, right? So he's just a public-spirited person. There was nothing particularly special about him um, other than the fact that he wanted to make a difference. Um, He was a sort of peripheral figure in the Republic of Letters, so a person writing into scientists saying, look, I've gone and look at, here here are my old Roman coins, or here are some plant specimens I picked up, but not really a scientist in in the kind of more modern sense, and certainly not at the centre of those circles. 
nor was he particularly successful professionally. He's an art teacher. He was a painter. We don't actually have that many of his paintings surviving or that are at least identified. Um, so in those regards, nothing special. And yet, you know, he's extremely famous, I guess, in, in other circles because he's the founder of, of the Society of Arts. Um, and that's largely just due to the fact that, first of all, he was persistent um, when trying to get an organization like that set up. I mean, it takes a lot to go from 11 blokes in a coffee house, as you said, to a 266-year-old organization with Royal in the title and all sorts of projects that it's done over that, over that period. But also someone with a vision, which was that kind of or a general core value, I guess, of public spiritedness. And that starts even before the Society of Arts, where he, you know, in Northampton, when he's just sort of hanging out with people at the Northampton Literary and Philosophical Society, um, he's practicing as, as an artist. Um, but he notices that poor people during the winter are really struggling to buy fuel. And I think this, this, this is a nice encapsulation of the RSA response to things most of the time, which is that instead of just complaining about this, instead of calling for things to be done, instead of vilifying the people who are selling fuel more expensive in the winter, like they almost always um, would do, given it's in higher demand, he instead comes up with a solution, which is to try and get a subscription fund going from, all the, from local people um, to buy winter fuel during the summer when it's cheap and then sell it at cost price um, during the winter to undercut and just bring down the price in general of fuel um, to the local inhabitants. And, and that's partly one of those ideas that gives rise to the Society of Arts, which is that he thinks, well, why don't we do this on a much grander scale instead of just this very localized solution to a local problem? Um, these are the sorts of problems that actually take place all across the all across the nation. I guess nowadays you would extend that even further. You know, in the 18th century, you're going from localism to nationalism, and that's the big, almost cosmopolitan step. Nowadays, you'd take it, I guess, a step further to the entire world. Um, but he's he's taking this this step to, to make it a larger organisation in that regard. Um, but it's really again just about his public spiritedness. He's uh, trying to find a means of coming up with ways to identify problems and then find entrepreneurial solutions to them, things that will actually impactfully and actively make a difference. So, so I'm sitting here, you know, I've been chief executive of the RSA for, you know, th 13 years, I think. And, you know, one of the challenges that was have been presented to me by people who've been critical of my work here has been, you know, that I've abandoned the traditions of the RSA. But, you know, I, I listened to your account of William Shipley and 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 I and the kind of bits of it I recognise. So it seems to me that, that on the one hand, the kind of strength of the RSA is, as I think somebody once put it, you know, it's an organisation that's willing to stick its nose into anything. So we, we have got that flexibility. We don't assume that there's one solution to any problem or one method even we'll 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 do whatever it seems to us thinks needs to be done we've got the capacity the agility to kind of move from issue to issue depending on what matters but on the other side of it there's always this kind of imposter sense to a certain extent which is well who the hell are we you know and now when when the rsa was set up there weren't many other organizations like it at all and so it was kind of justified whereas you know, today there are specialist think tanks, there are specialist change organizations, you know, you've got Nesta down the road with this enormous endowment. And so, you know, one of the questions is always, well, how can the RSA add 
value. I guess that's been a challenge, there, I say, throughout its history, this kind of, well, we've got the ability to turn to any issue we want to turn to. We've always got to prove that we've actually got something to offer. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's one of the, I mean, that is the unique challenge with an organization like the RSI. I don't think there's any organization really quite like it in that what it does or has done, you know, for almost 300 years is it finds a problem, finds a solution to the problem, helps get that solution going, and then usually pretty quickly hands it over to other people to to keep that going and then tries to find the next problem and then the next solution and moving on to a completely different thing. I mean, writing the history was quite difficult sometimes because a lot of these projects have very little in common. Right? Sometimes there'll be certain people who are, who are in common there, um, but sometimes, you know, even when it's the same people doing these very different things, using the RSA as their tool, if you like, for the public good, so that sometimes those projects themselves will have um, very little um, in common. Um, and so that is that is a big, a big, big challenge. And in terms of the, you know, who the hell are we? I think that's also part of the, the beauty of it is that ultimately it is an organization of people who are somewhat self-appointed. Um, although there's the royal in the name, which the organization has had since 1908, um, ultimately, you know, it, for, for much of its history, it's been just the Society of Arts. It's really just been a group of people collectively trying to come up with solutions in a, in a kind of more bottom-up way. Tell me about crisis, Anton, because at the moment I'm spending all my time working from home exploring how the RSA can make a difference in the context of a big debate. And that big debate is, let's look at how change is happening in the crisis and let's think about how that might propel us out of the crisis when we come out the other end in a kind of progressive direction, in the right uh, direction. Now, of course, the society, having been around for 266 years, has been through all sorts of, it's, it's been around when all sorts of crises have been unfolding, wars and social turmoil and economic depression. H how much has the RSA's agenda and its kind of methods been influenced by responding to these kind of moments of, of national crisis? Yeah, so it depends, right? So, in the 18th century, I think, on the first hundred years or so of the society, I think you have a lot more responsiveness than what happens later on. And that's because at that point, I mean, from the very beginning of the society, it's a direct democracy. So if you're a member of the society, you pay the fee that would then be pulled into the pot that could be used, um, usually for rewarding inventions, um, new innovations, opening new trade routes, um, and a host of other things as well. Um, and because of that, essentially a kind of parliament-like direct deliberative democracy as things came up and it was everything and the sort of thing that people would all these people would be talking about and um, obviously it would be very responsive to the sorts of things that are going on so during the seven years war in the 1750s and early 1760s a lot of the prizes they're giving are related to that um, when there's a shortage of wood for ships for the navy and the society institutes a prize to plant lots and lots of trees, right, to try and um, make those stocks up um, and make sure that you know, 100 years hence that you'll have enough, uh, uh, enough trees available um, for the Navy as well. When it comes to crises in prisons, you get things for ventilators from people like the pioneering philanthropist John Howard. You know, he's a member. He just stands up. They have a debate about it and they get that as a prize to sort things out. Another great one is... In the 1810s, you have a project going on in society to try and work out 
if there's a way to stop um, forging of banknotes because the Bank of England had printed lots and lots of paper currency for the first time in very low denominations um, rather than using coins, um, but then having this huge problem with, with forgery. Um, so you have that kind of responsiveness, I think, and the model of the site at the time being a prize-giving organization means that there was often a prize that could be offered um, for it. In much the same way as today, like with COVID, you see a lot of organizations suddenly pivoting, if they have prizes, pivoting those prizes towards solutions to them. I think in the later period, you know, in the, in the mid-19th century, it becomes less about specific things that are going on, and it kind of gets into more of a groove of doing particular projects come what may. Um, and so they try to see those projects through. And I, I think there's, there's less of a sense of them being, I guess, the more short-term responses to things as they come up. Of course, one of the things we've done in this crisis is to pivot our little fund that we give to fellows to support their initiatives and encourage fellows to come forward with ways in which they're responding to the COVID crisis to see if we can get behind those fellows initiatives Let, let's turn Anton to some of the kind of themes that are run through the RSA's history and and again I'm interested in relating those to the the themes that we're focusing on in in this current crisis we have this concept the name of this podcast bridges to future which is looking at particular areas where we think there may be the scope for change now one of those areas is education we're looking at the role that schools are playing in the crisis and how that might lead to thinking slightly differently about schools and education and well-being but education has been a very consistent theme for the RSA, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, some of the first prizes that they offer are for um, young people doing art and design. In the mid-19th century, it becomes the thing, really, that the society does. I mean, it ends up running for over 100 years, one of the first examinations boards, um, public examination boards, originally set up to promote the mechanics institutions. So this was a group of bottom-up institutions set up usually by working men after they came home from work. So often evening-based institutions where all over the country they would try to invite speakers to give courses on science, on design, and so on. They would pool their money to buy books for, for small libraries, for, to buy newspapers so they could read and discuss these things and sort of self-educate. Um, by the 1850s, though, and this had emerged in the early 1800s, by the 1850s, it seemed as though that movement was in decline. Um, but it seemed that from abroad, you have a lot of, ironically, actually, a lot of a lot of countries that had copied the mechanic, this bottom-up mechanics institution movement, had created state-based institutions to replicate them. And by the 1850s, these were seen to be more successful. One of the one of the initiatives in the 1850s for the society was to set up. Um, a kind of union of mechanics institutions where they could provide help, create a network um, for all of them so they could uh, mutually support one another. In fact, the RSA's journal, which still continues today, was originally the journal of the Royal Society of Arts and the Union of Mechanics Institutions. Um, so that bit was later dropped as they kind of moved to other parts of it. And the point behind examinations, which hadn't really been used before um, in a systematic way either, um, was that they wanted to provide something for people who went to these self-education institutions to actually work towards qualifications that they could then use um, to get promotions, to get different kinds of jobs um, if they wanted to. So it's originally designed for them and then later on it became a public examination system. In fact, 
to listeners today, if any of them are teachers, I'm sure many of them will know of OCR, the examinations board, or if anyone's got kids who are taking exams with various different boards, it's one of the more common ones. Um, OCR stands for Oxford, Cambridge and the RSA, which are the three oldest um, examination institutions in the, in the country. Um, all three of them having been set up in the 1850s by a pretty a small group of people who wanted to use examinations to also build up a state-based education system. It's quite an interesting little bit of history that a lot of people don't realise, but the state getting involved in education was very, very difficult in the mid-19th century because of religion, right? If the, if the state funded schools, then the Anglicans said, well, obviously they should teach the established church doctrine, and the dissenters said absolutely not. Um, and if the government suggested they teach no religion at all, then both sides thought that was ridiculous. Um, and so in order to get involved in schools, in order to provide funding for them, um, they essentially use teaching to the test, creating qualifications and then paying um, teachers based on the number of students who passed those exams to then get certain subjects to be taught in schools. Um, and that system is what eventually becomes the Board of Education, then later the Department of Education um, as well in the 20th century. The society was very much at the forefront of that. And, you know, even beyond that, today you've got vocational qualifications like those offered by city and guilds. Well, the society was also heavily involved in the setting up of city and guilds, um, creating vocational qualifications for adults um, and continued to have play a role right into the late 19th and even early 20th centuries in that. One of the other conversations taking place now about this crisis is how we can have a green recovery. So just reflect, uh, Anton, there's so much ground to cover. We've got so little time. We've got to rush through it. But re reflect on the role the RSA has played in relation to conversations about the environment, because I think that's another area where the RSA has often been kind of you know, slightly ahead of the curve. Yeah, certainly. I mean, you can point to much older things that the society did, which might seem environmental today. I mentioned those premiums for planting trees. I mean, in reality, those were about building warships. So not quite as environmentally friendly as you might suspect. Um, but in the 1960s, there's a very interesting initiative, which is that, well, really, it starts with the built environment, which is that the society by the early 20th centuries was very uh, early 20th century was very interested in preserving buildings that were otherwise going to be torn down. This starts right back in the 1860s when they set up the blue plaque scheme, which I'm sure many listeners will be aware of. They probably don't realise, though, that for the first few decades it was run by the society. And the idea was that private landlords could tear down whatever building they wanted if they owned it before planning law had come in. And so this was a way to try and persuade landlords that they, you know, maybe would actually make a bit more money if there was this historical association. You know, it's a selling point. Um, so by displaying it, they hoped that that would work. Um, unfortunately, of the ones that the society helped put up those plaques, about half of them were demolished anyway. So limited or well, mixed success. In the early 20th century, they, they then move on to preserving old cottages, which due to public um, sanitation laws were being torn down because the landlords couldn't afford often to... Um, put in all the sewers, put in the better foundations, prevent all these lovely old medieval and Tudor cottages, what they called ancient cottages. Uh, so they were just simply tearing them down. And so the society set up a big fund um, to try and um, preserve them. And ended up, actually, this fund ended up pretty much buying the entire village of West Wickham. So if you go and visit West Wickham, there's actually a lovely little plaque that describes how it was um, restored by them, preserved by the society, and then handed over to the National Trust. And then this kind of moved into natural environment as well. So the thing to note here is that 
in the 1950s, 60s, if you said you were an environmentalist, that had nothing to do with what we'd now call the environment. That just meant that you probably thought that nurture rather than nature was more important in the upbringing of children, right? So the environment for kids um, rather than the environment as a whole, the kind of natural ecosystem. And But that understanding starts to emerge in the 1950s and 60s. Partly, I think, and the society plays a big role here. Prince Philip, when he was president of the society, was very interested in those sorts of conservation, more localised conservation issues. When you have this movement of conservationists bubbling up, the society played a role um, via his direction there to a certain extent, um, bringing all of those different conservationist voices together um, into a bunch of conferences called The Countryside in 1970, um, which was looking forward to 1970. They actually happened in the 1960s. Um, but what's interesting is that they seem to have played a really significant role, not just in the UK, actually, but in inspiring what would then happen in Europe, what would then happen in the United States as well in terms of lots of these groups, you know, people working on beetles or preserving birds in this place or wetlands in this place, because they all came together in these conferences, starting to actually conceive of all of those problems as being part of the whole, um, part of an environment and the environment being something that needs to be solved. Um, and so 1970 is a really interesting year there because they not only had these conferences building up to it, but it's the first year in which green issues start to register for the public in, in terms of Gallup polls and other public polling. It's the year in which the Department of the Environment is founded. You know, Heath speaks at one of these conferences that the society had helped organise. Um, and so it's one of those really interesting cases, not only of the society being kind of at the cutting edge, really, of the environmentalist movement in the country, but also the power of facilitation, um, which is, I think, a really interesting theme there. And often the society over its, its history isn't necessarily the one doing the doing, um, but it's bringing together the people who are doing various different things and actually creating something new through that combination. Well, that takes me to my own obsession, which is the issue of change and how change happens. So reading your book, there was a couple of things that, that, that came out of it in terms of how you think about change. One is you just have to accept a pretty high failure rate. That if what you're trying to do is to create long-term shifts in society, the vast majority of things you do will fail. Or, and this is my second point, they may appear to fail because you may have planted a seed, but now is not the time for that seed to grow. It might grow many, many years later. It might grow in a different kind of institutional context. So are, are those the lessons we should learn about change, a kind of tolerance of failure, but also recognition that that, that change doesn't always happen in a kind of linear way. It can happen in a slightly roundabout way. And then secondly, Anton, the, the very notion of, of, of a kind of theory of change, you know, the RSA starts out giving prizes and premiums. That's its theory of change. And, you know, today we, we have a kind of an approach which tries to bring together research, fellowship, engagement, uh, being a platform for ideas, a kind of systemic approach to change. Has the RSA always had a kind of underlying account of change which has evolved? Or have there been periods of time when it's it, it's kind of fallen slightly into complacency? It's kind of taken its eye off the question of impact. Yeah, so I think you're right in that change doesn't always happen the way that we want it to. Um, certainly, you have a lot of cases where a project is initiated and then decades pass and nothing happens. But actually, the fact that you've done the project in the past ends up being extremely useful. And there's something for people to draw upon. Um, unfortunately, there are also cases where the society was too ahead of the time. A good example of this is public toilets. Um, the society helped organise the Great Exhibition of 1851. 
as part of that organizational effort, they were worried about so many people coming to London and not having the, you know, the facilities um, for them to use. And so not only did they set up a system um, to then trial there, but they used the Great Exhibition, the success of the toilet facilities, the Great Exhibition, to try and set up a system for London in general to be more lasting. And unfortunately, because that didn't work, it seems as though it then actually kind of led to a bit of a delay to later efforts to create self-supporting, you know, self-funding public toilet systems, you know, the sort where you'd pay a bit and that, that payment would lead to its maintenance so that those facilities would exist for a very long time. Um, so there are cases like that as well. But I think the main lesson there is that, firstly, persistence matters. Secondly, there's no point being getting kind of down about it, which is that although a particular project might fail or it might fail or maybe even a series of projects might fail the fact that you've actually tried to do something about it i think is what counts and what matters um, and ultimately does have some impact um, in the long term um, but it'll only have that impact if there is that persistence that goes alongside it the society of arts could easily have not become what it is today had shipley not kept on turning up week after week sometimes even when there weren't other members turning up like in the records in the minutes that you even have a week where it says William Shipley arrived, no one else turned up for two hours, so he went home. You know, But the fact that he kept on coming and kept on trying to find solutions to those sorts of problems, even if there's kind of boring organisational or administrative problems, um, was what counted. There are other examples of that as well. So to come to your other question, though, which was about periods where the society has perhaps been, had less of a theory of change. Yes, I think, well, it, it, it depends. Um, in the first hundred years, the society's theory is that we can do a lot with prizes, right? Prizes incent with for a very small amount of money, especially if you're just going with an honorary prize, which is just a medal. You can potentially get a lot of people to do a lot of things, right? Much more than the cost of the medal itself, or much more than the cost of the prize itself. And that was Shipley's insight there, which is that you can use people's incentives to get them to do things for the public good, so use their self-interest, harness it towards um, better ends, but also in a highly cost-effective way. By the 19th century, this has changed. I think the, the model of change here is that actually it's all about diffusion and spreading of knowledge. The society focuses much more on examinations, as I mentioned, and trying to promote education as a whole, the diffusion of knowledge, but also on exhibitions, right? The Great Exhibition comes out of the idea that you can get people to improve things, to invent things, if you put manufacturers next to one another. If you have one inventor kind of being able to enter a room, see what another inventor has been doing. And the same with consumers, that they can see what, what's available in one place and then purchase that, um, that thing, or they can at least demand from their local producers to create something um, similar. Um, so that becomes their new model of change. But there can be periods where the society had been, or you know, campaigners have been doing something for so long that they lose sight of why they were doing it in the first place. It just becomes a sort of thing that they do on rope. Um, and that's something that happened sort of in the 20th century for various reasons, until the society started becoming a bit more active. I mean, there was the environmental stuff in the 1960s, and then in the 1980s really forced to become a bit more active as well. Anton, I could go on talking to you all day. I'm very proud to be chief executive of the RSA. And your book just made me realise how much we're kind of standing on the shoulders of those who've come before. Um, Arts and Minds, uh, How the Society of Arts Change a Nation is uh, available on all good websites. And you really don't have to be an obsessive about the RSA to find it interesting. It's a brilliant history 
it's a prism. The history of the RSA is a prism to the history of Britain and to the history of institutions and the relationship between institutions and change. So very broad questions there as well as the specificities of the RSA. Uh, and also, if you've been inspired by listening to a bit of the RSA's history, then do find out more. Visit the RSA website. Or, and just final question, Anton, just give us a very quick history of the fellowship, because I'm also going to say to people, if you want to really get to know the RSA, there's no better way than finding out about how to become a fellow. So just tell us in 30 seconds, Anton, the history of RSA fellowship. <laughs> well, I would say the more accurate term is member, right? It's a membership organisation. Members, uh, people become fellows of the RSA, not because they're achievers in some sense that they're being elected to some prestigious small group, which is what the term fellowship can sometimes imply. Really being a member of the RSA is about contributing towards this organisation and the fund that can then be used um, to, as I said, fill in the gaps of what's not already being done, finding the, those new paths um, to trail to trailblaze. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.